I want to start this morning by reading a quote. And the places that this, the, the ways that this quote can apply are so numerous that it's, it's hard to use it just once. But nowhere more does it apply than today as we think about abortion. Here's the quote. You say that you think it is wrong, but you denounce all attempts to restrain it. Is there anything else that you think wrong that you are not willing to deal with as a wrong? Why are you so careful, so tender of this one wrong and no other? You will not let us do a single thing as if it were wrong. There is no place where you will allow it to even be wrong. There is no place where you will allow it even to be called wrong. We must not call it wrong in politics, because that is bringing religion into politics. We must not call it wrong in the pulpit, because that is bringing politics into religion. And there is no single place, according to you, where this wrong thing can be properly called wrong. Would you believe that that wasn't written about abortion? Wasn't written any time recently, in fact, but is a quote from Abraham Lincoln speaking about slavery to those who claimed to think it was wrong but who were unwilling to actually act to bring it to an end. Isn't that a beautiful quote? We could spend a fair bit of time pointing out similarities between the atrocious practice of slavery and the atrocious practice of abortion. Each of these practices, for example, was defended by the United States Supreme Court, one in the Dred Scott decision, the other in the Roe versus Wade decision. Each also dehumanizes a portion of our nation, allowing us to buy and sell them for profit, allowing us to kill them in an attempt to protect our lifestyle and wealth. The question is, what should we as Christians do? And my exhortation to you this morning is to be consistently pro-life. Consistently pro-life. For me to preach on the sanctity of life or the evils of abortion would certainly be appropriate. And in a sense, that's what I'm doing. And I know it would be good and helpful. But in reality... Most or all of you who are here have already heard, you already know, that from conception, a human life is a man made in the image of God and precious to him. You already know and agree that abortion is the process of bringing that precious life to a tragic and untimely end. And so no matter how strong my case might be, that abortion is wicked and must be stopped, no matter how grand my rhetoric, in the end I'm afraid that it would be of little benefit to us. Like preaching to the choir, each of you would be able to leave patting yourself on the back for already believing what I preached, that abortion is wrong. So today I want to do something different. I'm going to assume that you all know that abortion is wrong. 
And I'm going to proclaim the responsibility that each of us has to stand up for the weak and helpless. I'm going to spend most of my time explaining what that responsibility looks like today. And I'm going to show how we've been half-hearted in doing that work when we do do it. In other words, I'm going to call us to repentance. Related to abortion. Let me read to you a few verses, one from Isaiah, another from Jeremiah, and then the last one is Psalms. Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. You're going to see a theme in these verses. Here's Jeremiah 22:16. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Psalm 82, verses 2 through 4. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. These passages and many others that are similar make clear the importance of speaking up for the voiceless, standing up for the weak, and protecting those being murdered by the wicked. A friend of mine, pastor in Indianapolis, lives among the poor and has a memorized sermon that he can preach at the drop of a hat that he can make 30 seconds to 30 minutes, depending on how much time he has. And that sermon is a sermon on these kinds of verses, naming the people that God has made special classes that he cares about particularly the orphan, the widow, the afflicted, the needy, the poor, the destitute. These are some of the people that we just read about here. And of course, nobody is better described by these words than the child, unborn, nestled in his mother's womb, threatened by the evil of our nation that allows that little one to be torn out, where we allow his life to be ended. Is there anybody more weak? Is there anybody more destitute? Voiceless, more in need of protection from the wicked. And there are many opportunities that each of us has to stand up for the little ones in our midst. There are walks for life that we can attend. Many of us do our best to support the work of crisis pregnancy centers, homes for pregnant teens, other similar ministries to these. 
We can even pick it outside of abortion clinics or give money to the National Right to Life or try to vote for pro-life uh, candidates. Try to vote for pro-life candidates. <clears throat> Each of these, to a certain degree, is standing up for the weak and the helpless. Right? But now let's go back for a second and let's think about those verses. There's an underlying assumption. The underlying assumption is that you won't be the people that are engaged in oppression. Right? In other words, there's two levels here. The one is assumed. It's assumed you shall not murder. You know it's wrong to murder. You know it's wrong to commit such injustice. You know it's wrong to afflict the needy. And so you won't be doing that, right? And as Christians, I hope it's safe for me to say you won't be doing that. If you're doing that, you must repent of doing that. If you've had an abortion, you must repent of abortion, right? But moving forward much further beyond that, what we have in these passages is not simply a command, no longer oppress the needy. What you have instead is the proactive, instead, defend them. How much further is that? How much greater of a command is that? How much harder is that to see ourselves doing that? than to simply say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to commit that evil. I never have committed that evil. My hands are clean. And what God says here in these passages and in many others throughout the Old and New Testament is, no, it's not enough for you simply to never have had an abortion. It's not enough if you have to simply confess it. You must go beyond that. You must rescue those being led away to the slaughter. And so now maybe you think, okay, well, you know, I guess I haven't really been doing a lot of those things that he listed. I... I don't even know where the Planned Parenthood is here in town, so I haven't been obviously protesting there. And I, I haven't called out to the women that are, that are going in that, that I'll help them. And, and I, I mean, I do try to vote for pro-life candidates. Maybe I should give some money to the National Right to Life. Well, maybe you should. I don't know. That's not my point. My point in reading through that list of things that we, that we like is that, yes, all of those are designed to go beyond simply not being involved in, in the evil ourselves, but to beginning to try to make a difference in ending it, beginning to try to make a difference in rescuing those who are being led away to the slaughter. Okay, so, so all those things are good. 
we ought as a church to be doing those things. <clears throat> but I want to take it a step further than those things even. Because all of those things are good, but none of those things will make you into a consistent pro-lifer. A consistent person who always has a godly understanding of life. Who values the image of God in man at all times. In other words, even if you did all of those things, that would be no guarantee that you were safe from hypocrisy. You understand? Let me illustrate my point with a couple of true stories. Two Christian men who were brothers, both involved in leadership <clears throat> positions, within the Christian community. One votes Republican, the other votes Democrat. This is an area of strife and tension between the two of them, being brothers as they are. And the Republican says to the one voting Democrat, don't you even care about the babies? Now let's leave aside for a second what justification or response the one voting Democrat may have had. That's not the point of the story. Here is this man who is a, a single-issue voter, if you will. Right? Don't you even care about the babies? And later he and his wife are doing in vitro fertilization because of their desire to have their own biological children. Do you see how that's inconsistent? What is the problem there? Well, maybe there is no technical problem. Maybe they only ever fertilized the embryos that then they used. Okay, but in vitro fertilization as as a whole is a practice that is built on murdering little children. It's built on abortion. That's its foundation. And so being pro-life does not make us consistent, does not make us into holy people, does not make us, does not protect us from hypocrisy. Another story of two Christian friends. One of them is the most pro-life that the other one knows. The most pro-life person that they know. And this most pro-life one that this friend knows wants to have babies, so she gets fertility treatment. 
and ends up pregnant with triplets. What a blessing, right? And yet because of the risk to her health, she aborts one of those three babies. She is the most pro-life person that her friend knows. This can't be the level at which our love and our care, our desire to protect the weak and the helpless, plays out in our lives. That can't be the level of obedience that is satisfactory to us because it is not the level of obedience that is satisfactory to God. God's love does not end when our convenience runs out. Our care for the life of little ones cannot come to an end when it stops being convenient. So how are we tempted to be pro-life in one area and to not care in others? Well, there's lots of ways that we're tempted. And a lot of times it comes down to what we don't want to do. What we, what we don't want to face. Often we don't want to speak up when we find that our cousin or our niece is pregnant, even though we know that she may well have an abortion. We know her past. We know what she believes. We, we know enough about her to know that that is a distinct possibility. But what does speaking up cause. A mess. A mess in the family, not just with her, but with her mom and with your parents. And this mess just spreads. And so we don't want to bring it up. We don't want to talk to her, right? It may be that simply bringing it up and asking her what she intends to do will cause her to be offended because she would never have an abortion. And she's angry at you for years for even doubting that the possibility was there. And yet, is it, is it okay if I point out that sometimes... It's that very outrage that makes her decision for her and saves the life of the baby. Do you understand what I'm saying? It 
No, I would never do that. That's when the decision is made. What else do we not want to do? We don't want to speak up about the morning after pill. Right? Two people who shouldn't be in a relationship in the first place. And kind of sigh with relief when you find out that when they committed fornication that then she took the morning after pill. It's like, okay, well, at least there's not going to be a baby coming out of this. Right? Well, is that what is that what that means? No, that's not what that means. What that means is that if there was a baby we as a society, they as a couple, and us, sighing with relief, are all willing to have that child die rather than face the inconvenience and the sadness and the pain of that child being born to that couple. Will we speak up? Will we be consistently pro-life? Will we always care when the lives of unborn children are at stake? Will we warn people against in vitro fertilization? I mean, honestly, it doesn't get much more awkward than that, does it? (laughs) But if you know that's what they're doing, they have already invited you into their life to an extent that you are now able, by the grace of God, to speak into their life on this issue. Do you see? Yeah, it's awkward. But standing up for God's truth is always awkward. And more than that, defending the weak and the helpless and the innocent against the oppression and destruction and death of the wicked is always more than awkward or inconvenient. It pits you against the enemy. You are placing yourself in between those who are trying to do harm and the one that they're trying to harm. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about an unborn baby or whether you're talking about a grown man. When you step in between the person who's trying to harm and the one who's about to be harmed, you are taking the wrath upon yourself. 
Yeah, it's awkward. Yeah, it's inconvenient. But can anything be more beautiful than that? I'll come back to this, but I just want you to think for a second about the gospel. Is that not the story of the gospel? Can anything be more beautiful than stepping in between and protecting? No. Nothing can be more beautiful. Now where else do we not want to do it? We don't want to do it when we're talking about embryonic stem cell research, do we? Well, yeah, you know, I know. <clears throat> I know, I know. You all are all with me already on all these things, right? But there's a difference between knowing and doing, isn't there? When people are talking about the, the beauty of embryonic stem cell research and how it's going to make the world a better place, how it's going to cure, oh, you name it. What's it not going to cure? It's going to make us live forever. We're going to be gods. This is the promise of embryonic stem cell research. We will live forever. We will solve all of the medical problems in the world. It'll be the miracle cure for everything. And what do we as Christians say? We're all for medicine. We're all for fighting against sickness. Finding cures. But the bloody, demonic sacrifice of children has never brought about the promise, the lie of Satan, that it'll be for our good. It's always been the lie, and he has always been a liar, and he has never fulfilled his promise. Sacrifice your children. It'll be for the good of the land. There'll be, there'll be food again. There'll be all of our problems that we've been having, all these disasters, they'll go away if we just sacrifice our children. Will we just say no? Our vaccinations are created by using the remains of aborted babies. Our birth control Is abortifacient. 
and we don't want to know. We just don't want to know. And when we hear, we just want to pretend like we didn't hear so that we can go on claiming that we didn't know. But do we want to be consistently pro-life? We want to be. And so we can't be ignorant. We can't want to be ignorant. We need to want to know so that we can stand for life wherever we have the opportunity. But so much of our way of life is built on these things. It would be economically disastrous for, to, for us to end all of these things. Do you know what would, what would happen if I just started having children every which way? If all those poor people just started having babies everywhere? We'd be overloaded and, and exploded and it would be awful. The welfare system would collapse. Everyone would be out of food. Don't you understand, you ignorant fool? We need to kill our children. We don't want to know or too much of our way of life is built on these things, or it would be a disaster economically. These are the same reasons people were unwilling to truly fight slavery. Do you understand what kind of economic disaster it would be if we just put an end to this? That's, that's, the, that's the argument. Don't you realize that our whole life, everything that we do is built around this? You can't just expect us to, to up and, and stop living this way. What's it going to mean for me and my family? Or, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, no, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Sorry, I, I haven't seen any of that. I... We must be willing to actually stand up for life, to actually stand against all the ways that it is cut off. And until we are willing to fight the idolatry that leads to abortion, it will continue unabated in all of the forms. Why? Well, because we're conflicted within ourselves. Can a spring produce both fresh and salt water? We cannot be given over to the same idolatry as the culture. It will produce the same fruit in our lives. That's what I'm saying. 
What are these idols? Money, our standard of living. Wanting control of our lives and our bodies. Our careers. These are the idols that lead us to believe particular lies along with the rest of the culture that worships at the foot of these same gods. What are those particular lies? Well, one of them is the lie that sex can be separated from bearing and raising children. Or to put it another way, that there is such a thing as an unplanned pregnancy. You understand? Unplanned? How could it be unplanned? What did you do? Did nobody ever tell you how these things work? How they work is that they're connected. This is how God made us. This is a beautiful thing. It's, not to be, it's nothing to be ashamed of, and it's certainly nothing to ignore and cover our eyes. You know, our, our culture is just adamant that we need to all learn. We need to learn more and more and more and more and more and more and more about this, this, this most important of three-letter words, right? We need to learn and learn and learn and learn, and yet somehow we don't understand the most basic fundamental thing, which is that it's connected with bearing and raising children. What have we learned? Our great learning has driven us mad. But do you see why the idolatry of money, of, of, of a particular standard of living, leads us to that lie? We're not willing to give up a particular standard of living. We need to have X amount of thousands of dollars per child. We only make this much. Therefore, here's how many children we can have. Oh, but you can't expect me to stop having sex when that happens. No, we don't. Of course not. Rather, what we must do is we must trust God. Trust God. What other lies do our idols lead us to believe? Well, one that we as pro-life Christians like to believe is kind of what I've been going on and on about in a related way. We believe that children are a blessing, but only after we've made a certain amount of money, or only after we've had a fulfilling career, or only after we've traveled the world, or fill in the blank.
The children of one's youth, though, are a blessing from the Lord. Can we believe that? Let's not be hypocritical pro-lifers. If we're to succeed in ending the murderous practice of abortion, we can't be given over to the same lies and idolatries that the world is given to. And you say, oh, see, now, you can, I, now it comes out. Your goal is to succeed in ending abortion. And I say, yeah. Yeah, that is the goal. Our goal is that God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is why we pray that. Don't be ashamed of having that as a goal. That's a wonderful goal. That's the goal that Jesus gave to us, right? We have to be consistent in understanding that an innocent human cannot be executed no matter the circumstances. And in order to be consistent, we need to broaden our opposition to include all these practices, not limit our opposition to simple convenience abortions. So let's, let's turn one more time to Jeremiah, and let me read a little bit more of the context. God is speaking to King Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Josiah was a good and godly king, and Jehoiakim, his son, was not. Jeremiah 22, 13 through 16, says, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness, and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay, and does not give him his wages who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. Do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? What a wonderful call that is. What a a promise from God. He did righteousness and justice, and he still got to eat and drink. He was still king. And it was well with him. God goes on to give the promise that it's not going to be well with Jehoiakim. His end is disaster. No matter what he thought he was accomplishing by making sure he had the right standard of living for a king. So it's not only unborn babies that we must seek to protect, is it? Really, as followers of God, we should always be looking out for the underdog. 
I say underdog because it brings, it brings to mind the right attitude, okay? It's not literally the underdog that we care about, but the oppressed. Those who don't have a chance, those who don't, you know, you want to give them, you want to, you want to give them an opportunity to get what you feel like they should get with an underdog. But with the oppressed, it's you want to give them what they deserve. You want to give them what is rightfully theirs. You want to protect them from the attacks that are being raised against them. That's what it means to be consistent, to not be hypocritical as a pro-lifer. Now about this time, we start to feel like the pressure is too great or maybe you began to feel that way a long time ago, I don't know. But when, it, when, I, when I go on and on and on about the unborn, and then I start to say, okay, now really, let's, let's open this up a little bit wider. Let's talk about all of the oppressed. Let's talk about all of the needy. Let's talk about all of the widows and the orphans. Let's talk. It's just like, okay, this feels like it's impossible. Pretty soon the pastor's going to be telling me how I don't actually care for the widow. Then he's going to be talking to me about how I don't care for the orphan. He's going to be showing me how I sin, not loving those who are in prison. He's going to be, you know, he must be a legalist, right? No. No, this is the essence of the gospel. God loved us, protected us, and saved us when there was nothing we could do to help ourselves. When we were squirming in our blood, when we were already guilty, he said, live. He stood in between us and our oppressor, which was us. So let's treat this as something that matters. Let's treat it the way God does when he says, Josiah pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord. We're always tempted to see caring for others as less important than God makes it. Who are the most afflicted and needy today? Physically, clearly, it's children who are being aborted. They're the most needy. Spiritually, who are the most afflicted and needy? It's those who are being prevented from hearing a call to repentance. They are the most needy. Both of them are very real. Are there other people who are afflicted and needy? Absolutely. Physically and spiritually, right? So let us care enough to plead the cause of the afflicted and the needy. It's hard work, 
but it's filled with joy. Because then it goes well for us, and then we know God. 